This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 12 of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey Andrew. How you doing, Charlie? I'm doing alright, Andrew. I'm savoring some whiskey, as in I'm gulping it down one glass at a time. <laughs> really? Is that because you're you're so in love with season, the season two premiere of True Detective that you're trying to emulate its characters, or is it because you were disappointed and you just really feel like drinking? I, I think it's that I'm full of self-hatred right now for not loving this season premiere and also trying to get in the mind of the characters, Andrew. I'm trying to get in the character here. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, our listeners can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Also, be sure to subscribe to Detect This on iTunes and Stitcher. If you leave us a positive iTunes review, we will make you an honorary member of the Detect This team. There are no honorary members to induct this week, unfortunately, because this season is just getting started. But we hope to start inducting new members next week, so get those iTunes reviews going. But uh, let's dive into the Season 2 premiere of True Detective. Today we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 1 of the show. The episode is titled The Western Book of the Dead, and it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Justin Lin. As a reminder, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. If you have not seen the episode, you should go watch it and then come back and listen because we will be getting into a lot of detail about what happened on the show. But uh, before we begin, Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened this week on True Detective? Okay, so Ray Velcoro, played by Colin Farrell, is an alcoholic police detective in the fictional city of Vinci, California, who's prone to violent outbursts. Years earlier, his wife was raped and beaten, and Ray formed a bond with the gangster Frank Simeon, played by Vince Vaughn, to identify the perpetrator. Years later, Frank runs a casino and is on the verge of a business key business deal. But when a newspaper story on city corruption threatens to scare away investors, he sends Ray to beat up the reporter responsible. Ray is also assigned to investigate the disappearance of city manager Ben Casper, whose house is filled with sex toys and erotic art. Sheriff's detective Annie Bezerades played by Rachel McAdams, questions her father, who runs a New Age religious institute in the disappearance of a missing woman. Meanwhile, Highway Patrol Officer Paul Woodrow, played by Taylor Kitsch, is placed on administrative leave. One night, he races his motorcycle down the highway, only to discover the body of Ben Casper, who suffered a pelvic wound and had his eyes burned out with acid. Yeah, having your eyes burned out with acid sounds like a pretty awful way to go. Not to mention a severe pelvic wound, which I'm assuming means he had his genitals blasted off or something. Like, that sounds like someone shot him right in the balls, Andrew. I don't know. I'm sure we will find out as the season progresses what exactly happened. But uh, th there's a lot that, to talk about in this episode because it is the first episode of the new season and there are so many characters and so many things going on. Before we really dive into things, though, Charlie... I'm curious, what did you think of this premiere? I get the impression, based on your comments earlier, that you were a little bit disappointed. Yeah, uh, I feel so bad about this, Andrew. I was just 
severely underwhelmed by this episode. I did not hate it. It held my attention, but especially compared to like last year's premiere, which had me gripped from the word go, this one just, there's so much going on and yet more is less in this case for me. I feel like Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey were two very, very interesting characters that were characters we'd seen before, but their performances made them a little more intriguing and weird. And also, my big complaint is that this episode doesn't really get started until, like, minute 57, where they find the body at the very end. And last year, you know, they found the body right away, and it already started all this intrigue and got the murder mystery going. And here, it's all Nick Pizzolatto trying to introduce us to these characters, but in very heavy-handed fashion. Uh, Characters are literally spouting out exposition to other characters to tell us about that character. And... I know it's not fair to compare it to the first season all the time, especially because this is only the first episode, but the first, uh, even the first episode of last season brought us into this weird environment in the Southern Gothic where that was kind of darkly funny and very, there were elements of horror and there were, it was a, you know, noir and like I had no idea where it was headed. And here I just found it to be so grim that it became monotonous and I pretty sure every time I laughed, I wasn't supposed to, with the exception of one line between uh, Colin Farrell and Vince Vaughn. I'm obviously going to watch it to the end, but just did not grip me in the way that the first season did. What were your thoughts, Andrew? Here's the thing, Charlie. I don't think that this is a bad episode of television. I do think that it might feel like it's not quite as gripping or interesting as the beginning of season one of the show, just because we're dealing in a different genre. Are we, though? I mean, it's basically film noir. Well, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. It's still a crime show, Mm -hmm. but it's dealing with a very, very different subgenre of crime fiction. And here's what I mean by that. Okay, so the first season is pretty much... A fairly traditional murder mystery when you get right down to it. It is, it's kind of a simple story. Yeah. It was surrounded by a lot of mythology and theorizing that made it seem more complex than it actually was by the time we got to the end. But I found that stuff to be fascinating in the midst of that journey. But anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty traditional, simple story that Nick Pizzolatto managed to really spice up by casting incredible actors, uh, crafting really interesting characters, playing around with nonlinear storytelling and jumping back and forth in time, adding all of those myth- mythological elements that you mentioned. So he, he took something small and went deep with it. This season, however, is not that kind of show. This is not just a show about two police officers trying to solve a murder. This is more of a traditional noir story, which is all about corruption. And those are really, really different genres structurally. Mm-hmm. And personally, I find that corruption stories are a lot less memorable, even though there are some very famous examples of them, like Chinatown. And- yeah, Chinatown is, pr- the, the, the homages to Chinatown are present throughout this episode. I yes. can't help but think of it the entire time. Yeah. Yes, Chinatown, LA Confidential. I mean, yes. these are, these are great movies. Mm-hmm. However, I find that by their nature, they don't 
stay with me as much. And that is because these corruption stories, well, okay, you can either go the route of the Godfather and focus on them from, like, the villain's perspective, Mm -hmm. which is probably the better route from a character point of view because... And from a plot point of view, because the viewer gets to actually see the bad guys making the deals, getting, you know, making the corruption happen. So it's easier to follow. When you have a movie like Chinatown or LA Confidential that's from the point of view of the police, mm-hmm. it gets really complicated because you are discovering along with these police officers, you, you're having to put the clues together and figure out oh, well, this guy made a deal with this guy who did this to this other person, and then this other company got involved, and it was all about this, and this one character had this one motivation, and then another character wanted this other thing, and it gets really, really complicated. And as a result, I find those movies tend to be more... They they tend to be more plot-driven as opposed to character-driven just because by the nature of the conspiracy... Yeah. They have to focus more on plot and just putting all those pieces together you know so i'm trying not to fault true detective for choosing that genre Mm -hmm. you know that genre inherently has certain strengths and weaknesses that come with it like for example i've seen la confidential five times i could not tell you what the details of that conspiracy were i can't either but i haven't seen it in years but what i will say is uh it's a terrific movie and it also gives you at least three or four main characters who, and this is my problem with season two, those characters, they're emerged from typical uh, traits that those types of L.A. noir characters stem from, but they're all played, they all seem fresh because of the writing. And I think that the performances are great too. Here, I think the performances of each, I think every cast member gives a terrific performance in this episode. I think the writing is really on the nose and heavy-handed, and sometimes it didn't even make sense to me. There were multiple times where I literally said, wait, what? In response to something a character just said. The writing also felt murky to me in a way where I was like, you know, this is exposition, clearly, and it's either so on the nose or so riddled in codes and whatever that I was just kind of, like, out to sea for some of it. But also, comparing see, this episode of television to Chinatown and LA Confidential is also very, very unfair. So uh, I, I don't think that it's... I, I tried not to compare it to those so much as I tried to compare it to the first season, which isn't even entirely fair in of itself, because, as you said, it's trying to be something a little different. At the same time, when it comes to comparing the pilots and how they gripped me and sucked me into a story, you know, I wasn't itching to see episode two nearly as much as I was last year. Right, but but again, I, I'm just trying to say that I think that's due to the tropes of the genre that Pizzolatto has chosen to, to, to focus on this season. Mm-hmm. I mean, because this is a, a conspiracy season, and it's all about corruption and, and institutions, he has to take the time this episode to set up all the individual characters and show us their individual little piece of the puzzle before he brings them together. Last season, the focus was mainly on McConaughey and Harrelson, so you could just throw them together in the first episode and then just go from there. You gotta, you gotta take some time to put the pieces in place this season because things 
are by their nature more complex. That's all, that's all I'm trying to say. For better or worse, <laughs> they are inherently more complex. You could argue that that's going to be a detriment. I'm kind of waiting to see. There are things that I liked about this episode and things I didn't like, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of be patient, and I'm curious to see how is that going to play out. Yeah, I just... I Don't you feel like we've seen each one of these characters a million times before, though? To a certain extent, yes. I will, I will admit that. But the question is, is there going to be some sort of twist later on that subverts these archetypes? Well, here's the other thing, is that there are flashbacks in this episode. There are very, very few compared to first, the first season. But there are also, like, for an exposition episode, there are blatant, like, we're not going to tell you what happened twists that I didn't really care about. Like, uh, Taylor Kitsch, for example, I really could not care less about his plotline. Okay, I want to I want to talk about specific characters in a sec, but let's start from the very beginning. Opening credits. The war was lost. The treaty signed. I was not caught across the line. I was not caught, though many tried. I live among you, well disguised. I had to leave my life behind. I dug some graves you'll never find The stories told with facts and lies I had a name, but never mind The new song for this season is Nevermind by Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, perfect, perfect songwriter for, for True Detective. Uh, a lot of people said that they found the opening credits to be a parody in and of itself. I didn't mind them. I thought they looked, you know, they were just like the opening credits of the first one. Which a Leonard Cohen song conveys all the themes of the show, through, merely through its lyrics and its tone. And, you know, I've always liked Leonard Cohen in the use of film. There's a really underrated, underseen uh, Adam McGoyan film called Exotica, where they play uh, Everybody Knows in a strip club. And it's just perfect and i didn't mind the opening credits of this show of this season i know some people did they set the tone pretty well for what is a very grim hour of television what did you think i think the opening credits are fine i I like i like the song and leonard cohen's a good choice you know he's a songwriter who's also a poet and Mm -hmm. also a devout buddhist and a very spiritual person and you know i think that's that's kind of appropriate for yeah true detective you know Mm -hmm. so yeah i think the opening credits are are fine i want to ask you charlie what did you think of justin lynn's direction here because he's directing the first two episodes and it is immediately apparent yeah very beginning that his direction is going to be a lot more traditional than Kerry Fukunaga's direction. But at the same time, this is not a Fast and Furious movie, and he's a lot more restrained than I think we're used to seeing him. But at the same time, Kerry Fukunaga was, you know, he had a lot more, he was kind of, both of these are set in fictional towns. Kerry Fukunaga's was season was set in the Southern Gothic, so I feel like that kind of gave him a little more creativity to come up with shots for, you know, this eerie Southern Gothic setting. Here it's L.A., and there's not a lot of ways you can show L.A. apart from, like, you know, the various overhead shots and the smog and whatnot. And, you know, I don't think he's nearly as good as Kerry Fukunaga in terms of his direction, but, you know, he's coming into this show where Kerry Fukunaga's direction was brilliant last season, and everyone, like, you know, it was critically acclaimed by everyone, and rightfully so, It's and by us. But... 
I feel like I don't want to be too harsh on Justin Lin because A, you're right, he's mostly familiar with Fast and Furious, which is a completely different genre. And B, I feel like no matter what director, you know, steps in, we were going to be harsh on him for whatever choices he made. At the same time, I will agree it's not nearly as stylish or eye-catching or as technically proficient as Kerry Fukunaga's direction in the first season, but I honestly thought it was fine. I think he comes up with some interesting shots. I was never, I, I, I never thought to myself, oh, that's a dull composition or whatever. I had no problem with some of the, the, the staging of certain shots. I thought it was actually pretty good to look at, if not nearly as, you know, intriguing as last season. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, Charlie. I'm going to be a little bit harsher. Okay. Towards Justin Lin. There were a few moments where I was really bothered by how he framed certain scenes and certain shots. And I think part of it was probably his choice as a director in terms of visually how he did the framing. Some of it could have been the editing. I don't know, you know, what he was responsible for in terms of that, but I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Mm-hmm. So the opening scene is Colin Farrell in the car talking to his son, dropping his son off at school. Mm-hmm. And Colin Farrell mentions, I, I guess I shouldn't call him Colin Farrell. Let's, let's get used to calling him by his character Vel, name. Velcoro. Velcoro. Or, Ray Velcoro. Which I read in one review. Uh, I forget which one it is, so I'm sorry for not giving credit where credit is due. Sounds a whole lot like Velcro. Yes, yes. Which I have to agree with. So Ray's dropping his son off at school and comments on, you know, hey, do you like your new kicks? Do you like your new shoes? Mm-hmm. And they never cut to show us the shoes. That is true. We never see his shoes. Yes, and then later on, that becomes a major plot point. Wait a minute, where's your shoes? What? He's wearing shoes. Right. You been drinking? Not those, the the Nikes, the the fucking LeBrons or whatever. The tennis shoes, you big... You, you You know what I'm talking about. I just didn't wear them. You realize I tell them people are lying for a living. All right, right. Let's let's talk about this later. Is that the is that blood on your sleeve? What happened to your shoes? There was a little thing happened last week. Boys, what happened? What happened to your shoes? Ray, God damn it! They took his shoes out of his gym locker. And what? What shit on him? They, they cut him up. That's it. Christ, man! Come on, this isn't good for him. Who was it, boy? Ray, stop it. Let's talk later. Jesus Somewhere else. God, you fat pussy. Give me a kid's name right now or I'll pull down your pants and I'll spank you in front of the fucking cheerleading squad. At first, I was thinking, that's fine. We don't need to see the shoes because what matters is Ray's response. Yes. On the other hand, I was thinking, well, maybe we could have learned something by seeing the shoes. Were they nice shoes? Were they, like, super expensive shoes? Were they just semi-expensive shoes? Kind of <laughs> they were a trash pair of Converse's that were barely on his feet, yeah. I, right. it's, almost mean, as if, it's almost as if that young actor forgot to wear a special brand of shoes that day, and the director's like, okay, we'll just pretend that, he, that, that he's just wearing them and we won't have to show them. Like, yeah, it, I, I agree. Right, I, I, I wanted to know, like, were these super nice shoes? Did Colin Farrell, obviously, did he pay a lot of money for them? Did he pay a lot of money given a low paycheck and maybe could only afford, uh, like, a, a middle-class brand of, of shoe? Not the best? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> were they Nikes? Were they Adidas? Were they Pumas? What were they? Well, yeah, like, I, was, yeah, I just yeah. found myself thinking, you know, even a simple shot of the shoes could tell us something about his character. Nah, that's true. Um, 
Can I tell you one shot that I was bothered by at the very beginning, which happens right after the uh, that scene, which is Colin Farrell getting interviewed by a, what I originally thought was a therapist. Is he is she like a therapist right after that? Like, or was she? Oh, she's a she. I I think they mentioned later on that she's a lawyer. He's talking to Vince Vaughn and says, "Yeah, I talked to that woman." You gave me the name of. She seemed like a therapist at first. We never really know. But they, there is a scene where she's talking about how Colin Farrell's wife was raped. And he slowly zooms in on Colin Farrell's face as she says. And they never caught the guy who did it. And there's like a mild drone in the soundtrack. And then it goes and then the drone goes away and he goes, no, they never caught the guy. And I'm sorry that that did make me laugh out loud where I was just like, really? Like, you're going to you're going to film it that way. So maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just trying not to be so harsh on Justin Lin. I didn't think the direction was outright bad. There were some decisions, I agree, where I was like, really, you decided to to film it like that. But I, I don't think that the production values of the show, I think, are are still quite good to distract me from. Uh, the fact that maybe he's not the most experienced uh, filmmaker they could have hired for this season. Well, that shot, yes, it was a little bit on the nose. I think they were trying to make you wonder, like, oh, did he did he take care of the guy? Is that why? Is that what he's thinking about? Maybe. Yeah. And and then they flash back to uh, th- this is another on the nose thing is right after that they flash back to him meeting Vince Vaughn in a bar who gets information on that guy and it almost looks like a shot of that Nicholas Winding Refn film Only God Forgives where there's this heavy red red tint in the bar as if he's meeting the devil and it was so <laughs> on the nose <laughs> that I was just like okay like I I get what's going on here but like a little heavy handed here yeah I'm gonna give you. Two more examples of areas that I think Justin Lin could have improved upon. Okay. Okay, so they go to Casper's house, where yep. he has all his sex toys, and as they're walking in, Colin Farrell's looking around, and then it cuts to a shot of what looks like a pool with a naked woman floating in it. And it looks like milk, right? And yes, the, yeah. and it's milk. And he says, "He says, do you? Do, are am I the only one seeing that, or do you see that too, or, or something?" And uh, and I was like, "Wait, is he looking downstairs? Is there like a pool with a woman <laughs> yeah. actually in there?" No, it turns out I had to like rewind the scene. It's, I did too. <laughs> it's actually a bowl, just like lying on a counter for decoration, filled with milk and this naked little miniature naked woman in it yeah and for all the for all the dialogue that is so obvious and on the nose to have colin farrell be like hey you see that and the guy says yeah and then walk past and not explain that i literally thought wait what am i looking at right now like i have no idea what this is right and that's what i mean when i say the direction was was kind of poor in this episode i mean give us some sense of geography let us know what colin farrell is looking at before you cut to a close-up yeah, I was I was trying to be a little a, a little less harsh, but yeah, I I have to agree with you, Andrew. You're kind of converting me into thinking, yeah, this isn't the best. Last uh, thing I will say. Yep. Okay, I know that given the nature of True Detective, Nick Pizzolatto probably wants the visuals to be a little bit more restrained, so you can't have crazy Fast and the Furious style action when Taylor Kitsch is on his motorcycle. However. That does not mean that Taylor Kitsch 
driving a motorcycle has to be boring. And again, it's pro- this is an un- probably an unfair comparison to make, but just three weeks ago, the premiere episode of Hannibal... <laughs> I knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> ...has like a two-minute sequence at the beginning of just a guy driving a motorcycle around the city. And yeah. it is just visually... Interesting and fascinating, even though nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. It's just a guy on a motorcycle, and you're just like, ooh, that's pretty. Whoa, that's cool. Oh, that's nice. And you don't even know who's riding the motorcycle. The show has just started. It's the season premiere. You don't know what's happening. But yeah, I agree with you. You're like, wow, this guy's like flying fast in the shot. The, you know, skyline of Paris is gorgeous. And I don't know what's going on right now, but it looks pretty. I agree with you. It looks as if they filmed Taylor Kitsch in a garage and they put a fan in his face. And they were just like, just pretend like you're going really fast. Yes. Like, yeah. Yes. And so that's what I'm saying. I, I, I mean, you don't have to go like super all out. You know, you can just choose some interesting camera angles that we haven't really seen before. Choose an interesting color palette and some cool lighting. Yeah. I mean, I, I to be fair, I do think that to compare that to, I know that I, I first of all, I agree with you that with the Hannibal comparison. At the same time, Hannibal is a very gorgeous uh, stylized show in a way that True Detective is not aiming for. True Detective is aiming for a lot more grit as opposed to... Hannibal, which is all about the imagery, and it's a really visceral, almost art housey show through the way that they make dreamlike images and even gore uh, beautiful to look at. Well, I mean, let's be fair. Season one of True Detective, you know, Fukunaga did craft some fairly dreamlike images. Yeah, even with maintaining the grit in that, you're right, because it was gritty, but even there were some dreamlike images that throughout that season, it was a different type of dreamlike than what Brian Fuller aims for with Hannibal, but I agree. Even, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right, Andrew. You're, con- you're, you're swaying me on just basically everything here. And I'm trying <laughs> to be a little nice because I felt so bad that I didn't like this episode, but I have to be honest. It just didn't work for me. Okay. Well, let's dive into to the meat of what's really going on here in this, this first episode. Let's go character by character. Okay. So do you want to keep going with Velcoro since we already started with that? Yeah, what did you think of Colin Farrell and his storyline throughout this episode? Um, I think Colin Farrell gave a terrific performance for what I found to be a laughably over-the-top character that we've seen a million times before. I don't think I've ever disliked Colin Farrell in anything. Even in like a crappy movie like Daredevil, he clearly knew what kind of movie he was in and sold the hell out of his bullseye performance. Here, I think he's terrific. I think the dialogue he has to utter is insane in some cases, and uh, I just find it to be kind of dull. I mean, like, we've seen this character before of the guy who's separated from his wife and is trying to get revenge and struggles with his kid and has a drinking problem and a coke problem, and it's so angsty macho porn-esque in its depiction of him that I found it to be more of a caricature than an actual character. Yeah, I have kind of mixed feelings about about this character. On the one hand, I think it's interesting how over the course of the episode, you know, it starts out and he seems like a good guy, like he's dropping his kid off at school. Yeah, that doesn't last long. Yeah, and then you gradually start to realize, okay, not only did he get that information from Frank all those years ago about who raped his wife, he apparently has been working for Frank for a while or has a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And he's clearly corrupt. 
and he has a really bad drinking problem. It goes a little bit over the top, I think. How many swigs of Jim Beam did he take in that scene where he was in the car watching the journalist go into his house? I think I lost count. Like, it was insane. So he, he beats up this journalist for Frank. He goes to his kid's school and ba- and calls his son a fat pussy. Pussy, who threatens to pull down his pants and spake him in time in front of the cheerleading squad. And I also love how my his first reaction to when his sh- the bullies took his son's shoes, he goes... What do you mean? What did they do? Shitting them? I'm like, yeah, like normal kids do. I mean, that <laughs> happened to me all the time in high school, Andrew. Just, I go to gym and there'd be piles of shit just stinking <laughs> up my shoes. You know, like normal teen stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, and, you know, and then when he goes to the kid's house and beats up his dad, it was just... Oh my god, hilarious. I laughed so hard and I don't think I was supposed to. I mean, like, I felt like he was going for over the top because he does say, and I quote, you ever bully or hurt anybody again? I'll come back and butt fuck your father with your mom's headless corpse on this goddamn lawn. Twelve years old, my ass. Fuck you. Obviously, it's supposed to be over the top. At the same time, it totally took me out of the show and just had me laughing to the point where I had to rewind it at least two or three times to make sure I thought I heard what I thought I heard. <laughs> so Yeah, kind of a convoluted character so far. However, I will say, I really like his scenes with Vince Vaughn. Yes. I, I think that that relationship is the most interesting one so far on the show. And this will be a good segue into talking about Vince Vaughn's character, of Frank. Mm -hmm. I like how Frank genuinely seems like he's coming across as a good guy. Like, you're a Mm -hmm. cop, I'm a gangster, I'm, but, you know, this crosses lines, I want to help you get the person who raped your wife, and you're not sure, like, is he really doing this out of the goodness of his heart, or is he really just trying to recruit Ray so he can have a cop who will do favors for him? Yeah, is he manipulating him? Is he another pawn in whatever chess game he's playing with these big, yeah, right. mobsters? Yeah. And then the scene at the bar later on. Best scene of the show. Best scene of the episode. I'm going to I'm gonna call it simultaneously the best scene and also the most irritating scene. I'll get to that in a sec. Huh. I did not expect that. To, I did not expect you to think it was irritating. It was the one scene that kind of felt natural to me. In terms of the dialogue, I think it's the best written scene. By far, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the performances, I think Vince Vaughn in that scene does really incredible work. Just little subtle things he does with his face. You really get the impression he's looking at Ray, who's sitting there in front of him, completely drunk, and you, you get, you get this impression that, yeah, he wants to use Ray, but he also kind of pities him and feels sorry for him. Mm-hmm. And I really find the layers to that relationship interesting to think about. I do too. And that was the one time where I thought Nick Pizzolatto allowed his characters to breathe and talk like normal people. You know, the whiskey joke that I, you know, mentioned at the very beginning of this show, that was the one time in the show that I thought the writing was really sharp and intentionally funny. And out of everything in this episode, there's a lot going on. Just those two characters sitting in a bar and talking felt the most interesting to me. This season's getting a lot of comparisons to Michael Mann films, and it made me think of how one of the best scenes of his 1999, I mean, 1995 film, Heat, was Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, who are cops and robbers who take a break 
to literally just have a cup of coffee and talk about their lives. And I'm not sure that this is the same scenario with good guy, bad guy here, but it what it did remind me of how like just small scenes that seem like nothing's happening can sometimes be the most revealing and effective. Right. So I, I do think that Vince Vaughn is good in this role so far. You know, people had doubts. Can Vince Vaughn do drama? You had doubts. You had doubts originally in our first episode. I did. And, and you know what? I'm, I gotta say, I think he's pulling it off pretty well. I do too. I thought he was pretty great. And, the, you know, like, I, I, I'm happy to see that he's still trying because for a while, I, you know, it seemed like he was just kind of doing whatever movie he could to get a paycheck. And here he, you know, he's kind of doing the, hey, I'm Vince Vaughn. I'm naturally funny. I'll just kind of say anything in this monotonous tone to get a laugh type of thing. And here I feel like he's giving the most restrained performance. I don't find his character particularly interesting, but I find his performance to be fascinating. I think he is well cast because clearly he's he's used to comedy. So he can he can give off kind of this laid back vibe. Mm-hmm. But he's also very tall, so he can come across as physically intimidating if he needs to. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he, he is striking that right balance between, again, the, the soft, sensitive, oh, I care about you, Ray, I want to do the right thing, versus this potentially more sinister side to him. I will say, though, in terms of the writing, again, his storyline is the most confusing. So confusing and murky and really dull. I just didn't care. But I I mean, I know it's not fair because it's the first episode. But anyway. Well, again, it's because by the nature of the genre, this is where you're getting into more of the corruption side of things. And you have to keep track of, wait, who's involved in this? What deals are going on? Who does Vince Vaughn represent? Who does Casper represent? And it, it took me a while to piece it all together. I'm not sure I still have it all pieced together, to be quite honest. Well, here's what I think is going on. From from what I can put together. So Vince Vaughn's character, Frank, now owns a casino? I believe so, yeah. It seems like he has gone from being a criminal to some sort of entrepreneur or business owner. Yes. And is trying to go straight. Yes. And has ties with the Russian mob who are helping him finance whatever the hell he's doing with this, you know, California, um, what is it again? It's not a railway. It's no, a, no, 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 it is, it is a, a, it is a railway. Yeah, it is okay. a railway system. So the, the city wants to build this railway system that will allow them to make a bunch of money from the federal mm-hmm. government. And I guess Vince Vaughn is investing money or he is going to, you know, be responsible for contra- being the contractor for the work or something. And he's trying to find investors and he's involved with Casper, the dead man, who is the city mm-hmm. manager. Casper is supposed to make the big pitch to all these wealthy investors. Who we see riding around in a limo multiple times for whatever reason throughout the episode. But anyway. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of these big potential investors does seem to be part of the Russian mob. They they just mentioned very briefly, oh, yeah, he's with the Russians. And it took me a while to figure out, oh, okay, that guy's with the mafia. So you've got the Russian mob. You've got the mayor and everything with the city. You've got Vince Vaughn in the middle of it all, and then you have the city manager, Casper, who was supposed to be presiding over all of these deals, but has now wound up dead for some reason. So there are a lot of moving parts, and, you know, they just kind of thrust you into this 
corruption plot, and it it was a bit hard to follow. Yeah, well, the reason it's hard to follow is sometimes they're saying stuff that is not subtle at all, and other times they're practically speaking in riddles. I mean, like, there's a line where he says, Vince Vaughn's character says, never do anything out of hunger, not even eating. And I had to pause and be like, wait, what? what what's he talking about? Like, I don't know. Like, like I get what he's trying to say, like, don't ever, like, it be impulsive, I guess. But, like, what did you make of that line, Andrew? Because it really threw me off balance. I think we just need to come up with a term for lines like that. There were a lot. I haven't even gotten started. Lines that sound deep and really, like, cool and true detective-y, but when you think about it, they're not really that deep and you're they're just confusing. I think we should start calling those lines Pizzolatos! Pizzolatos. And here's another thing. Matthew McConaughey did have those lines last season. But there was something about his character or his performance that made them seem like they made sense to that character because the character himself is lost in depression and he's, you know, Matthew McConaughey was really out there in terms of, like, his spiritual beliefs and whatnot. So I felt like for that character, lines like that made sense. Well, right. He's he's a kook. He's kind of kooky. So, so when he says time is a flat circle, you're like... Yeah, that makes no sense, but it totally makes sense for this character. Yeah, for his philosophy. But to, so to see Vince Vaughn, who's basically playing this straight, you know, like I'm going clean, you know, mobster, ex-mobster, to hear him say something like that is really jarring. Like, it really, really took me aback and made me think, wait, what? Like, do you know what that means, Andrew? Because I have no idea. I, I don't know. Can we talk about uh, Kelly Riley, though, who I did not know was in this show until uh, her name popped up in the opening credits? Yeah, so she's playing Frank's wife. Mm-hmm. And I also want to note, Andrew, Kelly Riley, I think, is uh, one of the most underrated actresses working today. She was in a brutally effective horror film that, oddly enough, very few people have seen called Eden Lake. It was one of her few starring roles, and she's terrific in it. And she was also in uh, a film that I know both you and I loved last year called Calvary, where she played um, a suicidal daughter of a priest played by uh, Brendan Gleeson. And I think that she is the character out of all of them right now who we learn least about, and because of that, I'm most intrigued by, because it almost seems like she could be some sort of puppet master for Vince Vaughn's character. I got, like, a vibe, and another critic mentioned this, too, of Amy Adams in The Master, where Vince Vaughn seems to be in charge, but maybe she's kind of, you know, pulling all the strings here. I don't really know what's going on with her. The one line that I did... I do remember her saying is everybody gets touched, which also was a bit befuddling to me. But what did you make of her character? I agree. She's intriguing. She definitely knows what she's doing. She's confident. She's confident. She's masterfully orchestrating all of the guests at this party. It's obvious that she's a good match for Vince Vaughn and his character. Mm -hmm. And and they seem to be on the same page in terms of what they want to do. It, It is unclear, though. Is she helping him, or is she actually kind of manipulating him? Yeah, because there were a few shots this season when Vince Vaughn's giving a speech, and she's, like, taking sips of Chardonnay or whatever, and it seemed really, like, something really sinister was going on behind her eyes. And maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it really, that was just a, a shot where I was thinking, okay, Justin Lin clearly wants us to see that there is something going on here that we're not aware of, 
that she is confident in, and it made me feel like she's some sort of master manipulator. I hope she's not underused, because uh, that would make me very upset, considering that, you know, Michelle Monaghan wasn't uh, always used the best of her potential last season. But she's the character I'm most intrigued by, and yet we learn least about, so irony. Well, what do you think of Rachel McAdams? Because she's been getting a lot of praise in the early reviews. What do you think of her character, Annie Bezereeds? Bezereeds? I, I, <laughs> listeners, if you know how to properly pronounce these names, please let us know that we're doing it wrong. Here's the other thing. Uh, I think that Rachel McAdams, for me, is in the same boat as Colin Farrell, where I think she's giving a great performance from what we've seen. I love that she's, it's actually the opposite of Colin Farrell because we've never really seen Rachel McAdams in a role like this. And I find it to be fascinating that she's in this authoritative role because she's never usually in this type of role. She's usually cast as the love interest in romantic comedies or she's a really good ice queen. She was, um, you know, Regina George and Mean Girls. She was also in a really underrated Brian De Palma film called Passion where she just sank her teeth into playing this marketing executive. It's a really psychosexual film that she just camps it up and is just hilarious. And um, here, we've never really seen anything like this from her unless I'm missing something from her filmography. I think that she's terrific in it. I wish that her character could be developed without other characters literally spouting out exposition about her in front of her face. Like, there literally are two scenes where two characters say, you are this, this, and that, and this, this, and that, and you have problems. And I'm like, why can't we see that through a scene of her in her house without dialogue? Or why does another character have to tell this to her face? It was just very monotonous. And I, I love watching her, uh, but I'm I'm hoping that her character gets less cliched material to work with. And I hope that uh, they cut down on the exposition with her character in particular. Well, I think it's interesting that they're kind of setting her up as a mirror for the Colin Farrell character. Yeah. She also has a drinking problem. She also does these over-the-top things, you know, involving a family member Colin Farrell beats up the person who uh, bullied his son. She organizes a police raid just so she can confront her sister about her sister being a, a, a webcam girl. So I think they are trying to establish some parallels there, which is interesting. Also, I don't know what's up with this, but there are a lot of references to Greek mythology. Yes, <laughs> that is very obvious. With her and her family, so... Her name is Annie, which is short for Antigone, which is a classic, tragic heroine uh, in a play by, uh, by Sophocles, who ends up dying again because she wants certain things to happen to a beloved family member. Uh, we've got her sister, Athena. Mm-hmm. They, uh, though she just goes by Athena. But Athena was the god, uh, the goddess of like wisdom and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Athena was a virginal goddess, which is kind of interesting given that this character is definitely not virginal and is presented as being very sexual and, you know, she's mm-hmm. a cam girl and there's this whole discussion about, well, is that porn or is it not? She is straight edge, though. They did say that. True. <laughs> so yes. apparently she's not drinking or doing drugs. Yes. She's just doing a lot of porn. But anyway. Right. <laughs> and then her father is this... Uh, New Age guru who uh, runs this facility called the Panticapium Institute or something, and and that's a reference to a Greek city. 
So there are all these references to mythology, and I'm, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see if Pizzolatto is trying to foreshadow certain things that are going to happen, or if he's trying to subvert our expectations. Those two scenes that you just brought up, though, convey my problems with how they're deciding to develop her character, because she confronts her sister after the raid. And the sister is literally saying all of these things that we're supposed to learn from her character, and it's really telling and not showing. It's just, you know shot of Rachel McAdams, shot of her sister, shot of, like, it just goes back and forth between those. So it's not visually interesting, and then on top of that, it's literally just hammering home what is going on with her character. And here's another pizzolato, if we're going to stick with that term. At one point in this argument, Thena says, when you walk, it's like a racer's clapping. And I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> like, like erasers clapping, that means, you know, like, that's usually a punishment in elementary school, right? Like, when the teacher says you have to miss recess and cl- clap the erasers so the dust comes off. And I'm like, I don't know what that means at all. <laughs> I guess it means that she's a prude and trying to punish her sister for being sexually adventurous. I don't know. I don't know. Because all I could think of is, like, her walking means clouds of dust, so, like, Pigpen from Charlie Brown, she's dirty and obvious where she goes. I don't know, Andrew. I had no idea what to make of that line. And I know I'm being really nitpicky about certain lines, but they really, these these lines in the middle of these arguments really took me out of the scene in a way that made me think, why didn't this happen with season one? And as we've covered, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson were able to sell that in a completely different genre. And I feel like it's not working with the corruption genre so much as the murder mystery genre. But the other scene is when she does go visit her father. Yes, and I, I have a few things to say about that. So okay. she, the only reason she goes to the Panticapium Institute or whatever is because she finds out about this missing woman who was last known to work there. Coincidentally, this also happens to be where the the place that her father runs, which is a pretty big coincidence, if you ask me. It also happens to be the same camp that, uh, or the same cult that Don Draper went to at the end of Mad Men. <laughs> it does look like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes and has this conversation with her father, and I th- I thought this was an interesting scene for a lot of reasons, okay? So they have this discussion... These totems, they, they watch over departed spirits. I've always felt your mother among them. You won't even own it a little. She abandoned the two of you. I didn't. You should spend less time in a state of resistance making up problems for yourself. What does that mean? A failed marriage, a few relationships... You're angry at the entire world, and men in particular, out of a false sense of entitlement for something you never received. Your entire personality is an extended criticism of my values, meant, I'm sure, to compel me into engagement through argument. Do you even like what you do? Or is it just a reflexive urge toward authority, out of defiance? Talk to your daughter, prick. Help her. On the one hand, I was trying to figure out, okay, is this what she's really like, or is this just his justification for how he wants to be, because clearly there's something happened with her mother, 
and it's kind of implied that her mother killed herself. Very implied. She walked into a river and he did nothing to stop it, according to her. Right. So that's a very tense relationship. And also, I found myself thinking about it in terms of this whole issue of misogyny, which has been connected to to True Detective and this whole idea of, well, is it a sexist show and how does it portray women? And this is a scene in which you have an older white man telling Mm -hmm. a woman, basically, you're overreacting, you're looking for excuses to be upset and not be happy. Let me put it this way. What somebody who supports Gamergate <laughs> might say to uh, to <laughs> feminists? <laughs> well, McAdam says, talk to your daughter, prick. And then she walks away and he says, I just did. And the scene cuts. Like, a little heavy-handed, Andrew. Pretty condescending. That is, that is straight up telling and not showing. Why can't we see... Rachel McAdams, like, happened to walk past a photograph of a failed marriage and just flip it over or something. Like, it's just him literally just telling us, this is her character, this is her character, trait, 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 trait. Why can't we just see Rachel McAdams do something that proves that she's like this? Instead, we have multiple scenes of characters going up and telling us what she's like. And they all support one another's theories. So that made me, I didn't really get that sense of intrigue as to, is she really like this or not? Because I, I got that from the very first scene, she's in her underwear, she's putting on pants. And the guy is literally saying like, it's implied that she's into some sexual kinks that this guy wasn't into. But again, it's not even a sex scene. It's him telling her I'm not into that or whatever. And she's just kind of like, this is not the morning for this. I have to go do a raid. Yeah. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that in just a sec, but, but last thing I'll say about the David Morse character, I like David Morse. I think he's a fantastic actor, but I really hope Nick Pizzolatto doesn't want us to sympathize with him. I didn't get that vibe. He seemed like a jerk to me. Well, yeah, he was just so condescending towards her issues and her problems and again i found myself thinking well if this is what a horrible misogynist would say to a feminist basically. yeah <laughs> and he also didn't even seem to be relative the slightest bit mournful for the death of his wife because she says you did nothing uh to stop her and he said look she abandoned you and i didn't and i'm like well you are in this weird cult like what's going on here so you know the, the ideas for these scenes are interesting to me the execution for how they are, how they play out, I find to be a bit frustrating. All right. Well, last thing I want to talk about, Charlie, is some of the, the themes that we see running through this show already in this first episode. There are a couple main themes that, that I picked out. First one is one that we saw last season, this whole idea of masculinity. Absolutely. What does it mean to be a man? Do you have to be tough? Do you have to like blowjobs? Do you have to like dra- yeah, like uh, right? Like, I I don't know. The Taylor Kitsch masculinity stuff really didn't work for me, as I said before. But the Colin Farrell stuff, as cliched as it was, I feel like it was at least a little bit better than that. Yeah, and you know, what does it feel like for a woman to take a man's job in a male-dominated industry? And that's why I find Rachel McAdams' character so interesting. And as to the ideas that you brought up about the misogyny, I feel like this is Nick Pizzolatto trying to comment back upon his former criticisms of season one. As I just said, though, like it just execution wise felt kind of stilted. 
Well, another theme that is clearly going to be explored here is this whole idea of past trauma and people being broken. You know, you've got Rachel McAdams, who had a rough childhood. Her mother killed herself. Colin Farrell's uh, Ray's wife was raped, and he had to deal with that. Uh, Taylor Kitsch's character, Paul, has these burns on his shoulder. We're not sure where they're from. He was also involved in something called Black Mountain when he was in the Army. So clearly these these people have some issues from their past that they're still they're still coping with. And Vince Vaughn is clearly haunted by what I assume are past demons from his life of crime that we probably don't know about yet. Right. And the third big theme that is going to be probably popping up now and now and again this season is the theme of sex. I mean, you've got Casper, who has a ton of sex toys in his home. Uh, You've got Taylor Kitsch having to use viagra because he can't get an erection you've got rachel mcadams who's basically slut shames her sister but also it's implied as you mentioned wants to do some kinky stuff in the bedroom and we don't know what here's the one thing i did find to be interesting is she's clearly the most sexually permit uh she's the most sexually active out of all of them even the male leads which i did find to be interesting because colin farrell isn't even interested in you know, falling in love or, you know, uh, picking up women at the bar anymore. How many movies have we seen where Colin Farrell's type of character would get drunk and then go, you know, have sex with some random woman he just met and then she'd probably say something after sex that would piss, and then he'd say something rude that would piss her off and she'd be like, oh, you asshole, and walk out. Right, it'd be like McNulty on The Wire. I found that to be interesting that you got a bunch of very macho male cops and characters and the woman is the one who seems to be wanting to take charge in terms of her sex life. I did find that to be interesting. And then she, you're right, she does sex shame her sister, right. which is, that is one thing that is interesting, is why is she so against her sister doing porn if she's apparently not drinking or doing drugs anymore, yet, you know, she's the one who, is is it like some sort of self-hatred, self-loathing type of, like, hypocritical part of herself that she doesn't want to admit? Like, Yeah, she's definitely a hypocrite. Definitely. Yeah. So that is an interesting part of her character. But but yeah, I think those are going to be the, the main themes we see explored over this season. Uh, masculinity, past trauma, and sex. And I'm curious to see if they can effectively develop all of these themes while still keeping a handle on this really complicated corruption plot. Yeah, and and it just made me think about, like, I know it's not fair to compare this to Chinatown or L.A. Confidential, but L.A. Confidential and Chinatown had sex, but it was always off screen, and it was usually not, it was usually, I don't know, like, the, the sex in this series seems to be almost, like, tacked on for... It's HBO, we should have some sex in there. It doesn't really seem to coincide with everything else that's going on, apart from oh, one other thing. You know, maybe Colin Farrell's wife getting raped has turned him off to sex because he's been exposed to the horrors of sexual violence. And one thing I am glad is that we didn't get some horrible exploitative flashback of that incident happening. But going back to Chinatown and LA Confidential, sex is involved there, but it's usually invo- it's usually off screen, and the horrors of it are mainly through how sex can be a form of violence in some sort of way. If that makes any sense, yeah, you know Chinatown in particular with the Faye Dunaway character. Oh, right, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, anything else you want to say about the season premiere of True Detective before we move on to some listener emails? 
I just hope that the next episode picks up the pace and uh, isn't so on the nose. I, I really feel bad that I didn't like this more, Andrew. Like, I, 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 I don't want any listeners to think that I'm just being some smug asshole who's looking for ways to tear this apart because I really wanted to go in loving it and I was just uh, kind of let down, just kind of underwhelmed. Last thing I'll say, Taylor Kitsch is clearly dead inside and yes i'm sorry i i almost burst out laughing when he starts racing down the highway at 100 miles an hour turns off his lights and then turns them on just in time yeah. to see the dead body <laughs> what a coincidence again yeah, like, again yeah. <laughs> this this season apparently is going to be built on coincidences it's sitting right side up at a picnic table. Yes. Like, <laughs> on the highway. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I don't live in L.A. Are there just picnic tables on the side of the highway just in case you want to, like, I don't know, eat a ham sandwich or something right after? Like, Apparently. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, listener feedback. As always, you can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. Uh, we only have one email to go over today. We got an email from uh, from the person who just might be the number one fan of Detect This. Our good friend Floyd from last season uh, wrote us. And Floyd had some interesting things to point out. He pointed out a lot of stuff that we already talked about, about like the, the allusions to Greek mythology and, and things like that. But he did say one thing that I wasn't aware of, Charlie. He writes, quote, Probably the line that, in my opinion, seems to stand out the most in the episode was, Behold what was once a man. I thought it sounded vaguely familiar, and when I looked when I looked up the line, it seems to be paraphrasing Pilate's observation of Jesus after he was scourged, Behold the man. Another thing that I found interesting is that in Latin, the phrase is ecce homo, and a certain author penned a book titled Ecce Homo, How One Becomes What One Is. That author? Nietzsche. Yeah, that Nietzsche. Time as a flat circle and all. This book was his last work of philosophy. Easter egg. That was a good find. I had no idea that that was, um, I, I had no idea that rooted all the way back to Nietzsche. And, uh, you know, uh, which was what influenced, yeah, Matthew McConaughey's character from season one. So that is an amazing find. And my hat is off to you, sir. I It completely went over my head. But it is fascinating to think about. Yeah, I did not pick up on that. I will say, though, I found it interesting that uh, Rachel McAdams' character, Annie, her apartment seems to be filled with books related to Japan? specifically Japanese knife play. And she loves her knives, okay? There's a scene of her uh, after taking a shower where she's putting her uh, uniform back on and she's just strapping on these knives. She's got a knife hidden in her belt buckle. I was just like, man, this woman... And, yeah, and her shoes. Yeah, she, yeah. she is prepared. If she gets attacked, she is prepared. Yeah, I was surprised she didn't stab anyone by the end of this episode, because you're right, they made it very abundantly clear that she has a thing for knives. Do you, do you think they're going to do, like, a homage to Chinatown thing, where she'll, like, slice someone's nose, like like uh, Jack Nicholson's in Chinatown? Well, here here's what I'm wondering, Charlie. You know, you said in our intro episode last week that you kind of hope there isn't any sexual violence. Mm -hmm. After the shot of her putting that knife in her belt buckle, I am wondering if maybe 
there is going to be an attempted rape that she has to uh, defend herself from using that knife. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I mean, I hope that doesn't happen, but it looks like she's clearly got some issues about sex. Colin Farrell's rape plot is already set in motion. So it does look like sexual violence is going to be, I, I agree, is probably going to be pretty prevalent throughout this episode, this season. And I hope if they do go that route, they don't go for cheap exploitation. I hope that it actually has something to say about these characters or about society in general or about how sexual violence is depicted on television. Uh, but maybe my expectations for that are too high. Well, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, but yeah, thanks for writing in, Floyd. Thanks for that really cool observation. Thank you so much. And uh, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Detect This. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget you can call us at 336-793-2509 and leave us a voicemail. You can also email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. Please get in touch and let us know. What did you think of this first episode of Season 2? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Were you disappointed? Do you think uh, we're being unfair with some of our criticisms? Uh, write in or call in and let us know. You can also subscribe to Detect This through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us continue to get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. You can just go to the website and click the support tab and the donate button if you want to send us a few dollars. Alternatively, we also have an affiliates page. You can visit some of our affiliates, including Amazon. And anything you purchase through our affiliates, if you navigate to them through our website, we will get a few pennies of whatever you purchase. So we really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio. Charlie, where can people find you online? You can follow me on Twitter at ctnash91. That's ctnash91. You can also follow me on Letterboxd. It's just Charles Nash. And you can also find work that I've written for Movie Mezzanine, Edge on the Net, All Things Horror, and Cinematic Essential on all of those websites. And if you uh, are interested and go to, uh, in cinema and go to the movies a lot, I was also recently on an episode of my friend's podcast that I want to give a shout out to called Spoiler Piece Theater, where... We discussed uh, Inside Out, the new movie Dope, and uh, me and Earl and the Dying Girl. You can find more of my work just by following me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. You can also find me on Letterboxd at WriterAndrew and see some of my uh, thoughts on movies and, and TV. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message. Let me know you're a listener so I can follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And be sure to tune in next week or I'll come back and buttfuck your father with your mom's headless corpse on this goddamn lawn. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!